But later, he changed his mind and went. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Or, as older translations like the authorized version or the, or the revised standard version render it, but later he repented and went. The Bible takes three approaches to an old church word, repentance, and that's what I'd like to talk with you about today. First, there's a Hebrew term that means simply turn. You're headed in one direction, and you pivot and go in the opposite direction. The focus is on a change of behavior. Turn to me, my people, says the Lord, and be saved. A second way to think about repentance in the Bible is from the Greek word that is the common translation in the Old Testament for the Hebrew word to turn. And that term in Greek is metanoia, which means to change one's mind. Think differently about something. And the term locates the source of behavioral change in a mental reassessment. Well, I believed X and lived accordingly. Now I believe Y and live accordingly. Thus, the New Testament's constant appeal, repent, metanoia, that is, think differently and believe. The third sense of repentance in the Bible goes back to another Hebrew word that's used for repentance. It's used when the change takes place more fundamentally at an emotional or heart level. It's really hard to, diff to translate, but the term generally means to feel differently, to reassess from the gut out of compassion or out of pity. In fact, the word is Nahum, and that's where the prophet Nahum gets his name. It's part of Naomi's name, which means I know compassion. And she actually puns off of that word when she's not feeling much compassion. So she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. When the Greek translates the word, it uses a word that means something like a change in what matters to you, a change in what you love. Meta, melesthai. The melesthai is where that word shows up in the New Testament world. Bear with me for just a moment where that word shows up in the New Testament world outside, of the, outside the New Testament itself is as the punchline in the most common funeral inscription in that day. I was not, I am not, I will not be, I don't care. Doesn't matter to me anymore. The term Matthew uses, where he has a compound to change what matters in your heart, 
That's what happens in this first son. And it puts us in the, the force field of Thomas Cranmer's theology. Thomas Cranmer being the architect of the English Reformation and the principal author of the Book of Common Prayer. As Cranmer scholar Ashley Knoll sums, out the, sums up the heart of, of Cranmer's theology, says it's like this. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. You have a hunger for something. Something just matters way down in the depths of who you are. You go after it, and then after the fact, you think, well, I need to justify that somehow. That's the way that we operate, and that's what happens in this son. Way down in the core of his being, somehow, something changes. What goes on in the mystery of this son's heart to move him from, I will not, like when he says that, it's clear that he cares about something else. What is it? What matters to him to begin with? Is it, is he too good to go work in the field? Is he working some other deal on the side that's more lucrative? Does he just have daddy issues? What changes inside him that makes doing his father's will come to matter more? I'd love to know. But it's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is that the tax collectors and the prostitutes had heard in John the Baptist's message not a merely human voice, but God's voice offering them a vision of something different to care about, God's kingdom. Something that made them ready to live by something other than amassing wealth by exploiting others or getting by by selling their bodies. Something else came to matter. The religious elites had also heard but they just didn't care. Now, Paul, it just so happens, was one of those religious elites who did come to care. Not at first, as you well know, but when Jesus did show up to Paul after the stoning of Stephen, something came to matter more to Paul than his zeal for his traditions and his homeland, something that he came to care about more than establishing his own righteousness through the law. He describes what came to matter to him in today's passage. He came to realize, and it came to matter to him, that Jesus had been God from the very beginning, who became a man, for the sake of an obedient mission of love for us. And not just any sort of man, but a servant, even a criminal. Implied here is his becoming a criminal to take the place of criminals on an executioner's cross. and was so much restored to the place of honor at the Father's right hand, so much so that every knee would bow 
and every tongue would confess his lordship. That's language that Paul pulls straight from the prophet Isaiah, who said the only one who was worthy of that praise and that adoration was Yahweh himself. Well, what did all this make Paul care about? What did Christ's lordship make matter to Paul? Well, it boils down to a life's posture that looks like this. You are no longer here for me. I am here for you. Go home and read the opening verses of today's epistle reading. Note the love that he is driven by and that he commends. Note the tenderness of heart, the agreeability of spirit, the willingness to lean in to the presence of others. As he puts it in verses 3 through 5, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to their own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And so, this Harvard-educated, entitled, and no doubt wealthy citizen of Rome and Tarsus abandons his rapid ascent up the escalade, up the ecclesiastical elevator in Jerusalem. He sets it all aside, just as his Savior had set aside his divine prerogatives, and stoops to serve. He refuses payment for his services. He is beaten and stripped, jailed and broken in health. But he travels the breadth of the world as he knows it to tell spiritual tax collectors and prostitutes, people he considers better than himself, that their heavenly Father loves them, that Christ has suffered for their sins, and that the Holy Spirit lives to cleanse and remake them. All they have to do is take the knee, open empty hands of faith, and let him take their hands in his and lead them into radically changed lives. So, forgive me, but this week I haven't been able to get past this one thought, that mystery of how something changes inside you to make other things, more real things, deeper things matter. One of the reasons I haven't been able to get past it is I just, I've been thinking about y'all, uh, you all, you guys, depending on where you're from. I, you, 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 you're not in the pastoral ministry for very long without realizing change is hard. Change is very inconvenient. And so I've, I found myself thinking about how hard it is from, for people I know to change, and that made me think about the mystery of change that I've experienced within myself. And 
so I offer. I found myself remembering the inscrutability of changes that I've sensed God working in me, that just one of them. As a child, and all the way through the seventh grade, I had a red, hot, flaming temper. Usually, no, always, one of the smartest kids in my class, assuming you measure smarts on the basis of being able to get good grades. But I was also the one most inclined to throw a temper tantrum. I would throw a temper tantrum because I got a 98 on a test instead of 100. I had spent hours standing outside my classrooms because my temper was so disruptive that my teacher would send me out there, often knowing that my mother taught right down the hall. <laughs> she would see me, and I would get it when I got home. I was banned from safety patrol in the sixth grade because the teacher I had in the fifth grade was the sponsor of safety patrol, and she just was simply fed up dealing with me. And then suddenly, with no explanation that I could offer, between the seventh and eighth grades, it went away. It was like a fog lifting. I came back to school a different kid. Somehow, I had come to care that I was such a jerk. I just didn't want to be that person any longer. One other change I can account for a little bit more clearly, and honestly, I found myself thinking about it this week because the wardens of the church and the staff and I had agreed that this would be the work that we would put a pledge slip in your, offer, in your bulletin and ask you to begin thinking about what you feel like the Lord would have you give next year to the, to the church. Okay, now, for 25 years in the classroom, this is not anything I ever had to think about. But the last couple of years, I've been wearing a different hat, so I think about these things. And so I was thinking about how I came to value giving. I trusted Christ personally early in college and started experiencing that moving around of internal furniture that Christ does by the Spirit, a moving around of furniture that many of us in the room are familiar with, I know. I majored in sociology, and as a Christian, the one thing that impressed me about the Bible's storyline was how God used the establishment of a people to be the strongest argument for his truthfulness. Jesus says, we are a city on a hill, a city that cannot be hidden. Paul says that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. You might expect him to say that the truth is the pillar and foundation of the church, but he puts it the other way around. The world is supposed to be able to look at us and say, oh, there's where the true and living God lives. John says that God is invisible. But where love is, there is God. The more I looked at it, 
the more I realized that the Bible meant for this all to be more than mere ideas. In the Old Testament, not only are there careful provisions for the ordaining of priests and kings and prophets to organize God's people for service, but there's a financial underpinning. You may not like this, but people were called upon to give 10% plus voluntary tithes and offerings to establish and sustain worship through the tabernacle and the temple. You probably are going to like this. And the king was permitted to tax up to but not beyond 10% to govern civil life. How awesome would that be? And everyone was expected to set aside, if they were able, an additional 3% for poor relief. Wouldn't it be a wonderful society that we were living in if we only needed 3% of our gross national product to take care of the poor? Then in the New Testament, there are careful provisions for the setting aside of overseers. We call them bishops. And elders, we call them priests. And deacons, we call them deacons. To help everybody find their place of ministry in the body. And then there's this staggering reticence about putting a price on it. Jesus does say, if you'll permit me to reword slightly, you give 10% of your garden spices but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Well, these you ought to have done without neglecting the 10%. Matthew 23, 23. But the New Testament's punchline, I submit, is Paul's invitation to give as we have encapsulated it on this year's pledge card in your bulletin. Give this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly, nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. So a change took place in me. It became important for me to give. All of me belongs to all of him, my time, my talent, my treasure. And so I began the pilgrimage years ago that we describe on one side of the sheet moving from giving only when I felt like it to giving regularly to moving towards finally getting to a tithe and then seeing the joy of giving beyond that. And honestly, it's been a great joy and I just feel like my heart has just expanded the more I've been able to give. Now, stay with me just another minute. I don't know where you are in your personal growth timeline in Christ. Truly, that is between you and him. I don't know what your job situation looks like right now, 
I don't know how Hurricane Irma impacted you personally. I also don't know what prompting you may be feeling from the Lord to help those impacted by Harvey and Maria. I do want you to know this, God's grace to you, the indescribable extravagance of the gift of His Son. I want you to bask in the reality of that love, and then, well, as my friend Steve Brown likes to say, you think about that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.